Hello, and welcome to Women Developing Brilliance. I'm your host, Casey Rossi. It's my great pleasure to present interesting stories of creative women sharing their message and lighting up the world with their presence and offerings. Get ready to be inspired. You can learn more about creating a business that you love by visiting kcrossi.com. Enjoy! So my guest today is Sylvia Hayes. She is a certified empowerment coach, and she has a very rich and diverse background that she brings to her current work. I absolutely cannot wait to dive in. Welcome, Sylvia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about how you came to empowerment, such a specialized field. What drew you to the field? Well, uh, it was the complete disempowerment of my life blowing up. So the, the short version of my story is I'm 51 now. At 47, I was, it looked like I was just on a trajectory to have life and career and everything sailing beautifully. I had been working in the sustainability and social enterprise climate change policy world for 20 years. Um, I got a phone call on October 7th, 2014, informing me that a reporter had dug up some dirt from my past. And what made that so incredibly terrifying was at that time, I was the long-term partner and fiance to the governor of Oregon who was running for re-election. So I was basically serving as first lady of the state. And overnight, um, I, I became clickbait, the most humiliated person in all the circles that I ran in. It was the biggest political scandal, um, certainly in Oregon history. It destroyed my, it, he wound up winning re-election anyway, but the pressure was so incredibly great. Political opponents used misdeeds from my past to launch uh, a campaign that we had misused our public positions we were investigated for IRS, FBI for two and a half years, and they dropped the investigation, finding nothing to file charges about. But the damage was done. And even though John won re-election, he resigned under pressure. And um, it, it truly turned our lives upside down. I can only imagine. Oh, my goodness. I mean... To get that phone call, I'm sure thinking that your stomach dropped was an understatement of your reaction. And I can't even imagine the type of pressure um, and the type of resilience that you have to have to keep a relationship together. Talk to us a little bit about both of those points. Yeah, that's a very astute question, Casey, because I write about this. I have a book coming out about it. Um, uh, It was like the whole world went into slow motion. It was just one of those moments where you realize, oh my God, nothing is ever going to be the same again, right? Yeah. um, Yes. Now I have had, this is not my first rodeo with big adversity. This is the first in the public arena, but I have a lot of resiliency muscles, you know, like a lot of us. I had some major challenges in my younger life. Uh, wound up on my, I was kind of the adult in the family too early, wound up on my own at 16, um, went through some rough years there. And then I kind of decided I wanted to do things differently while running heavy equipment, got my college degree, became the first, um, I'm very proud of that. I'm the first, I'm the first, uh, 
college grad in my in my family. I'm first generation college grad. Um, so I've had a lot of reinventions, and that's when this one happened. It was so catastrophic and mind blowing. I just spiritually felt like there's got to be a purpose to this because it's so much bigger than I am. And um, that's really what got me looking at how can I harness this. As to the relationship side of things, I, I am floored with gratitude to be able to say that prior to that phone call and this experience, John and I had been together 10 years and we had never in, said an intentionally hurtful thing or even raised our voices at one another. And I can still say that um, all of this. Incredible, incredible yes. testament to your relationship. And I think also to John as a human being, you know, to have that even keel patience and persistence and faith, you know, that's pretty incredible. It's totally incredible. And it speaks so highly of him because this was his first big adversity. And um, the fact that he really never blamed me, uh, you know, Gemini Christmas. I mean, I, I took ownership of it right away. And, uh, and I had, this is really one of those cases where, um, as you, I know a lot of your, your, uh, viewers are in healing modalities themselves. This was such a case that exemplifies sometimes the best thing you can do for a loved one is put your own oxygen mask on first. Because mm -hmm. I knew I had to not completely melt down or he was not going to be able to handle it. Absolutely. How many years did it take? I know you said that there was a couple years of investigation and I'm sure that was extremely stressful. But how many years did it take you to regroup and actually harness, in your own words, the experience and turn it into fuel for positivity and helping other women? You know, it's interesting because the first, it happened almost immediately because the first thing that had to happen was I had to have the fuel for helping myself. And so I wound up going to therapy. I had done a lot of therapy around the garbage that had happened to me younger, but this, I wound up going to EMDR therapy, which at that point, the name of my book could have been um, self-healing through public shaming. Mm. Um, that was so good for me. But I also wound up really, um, this is the most important part of my upcoming book. I reached a point where I described this. I also talk about this a little bit in my TED Talk that I did. I reached a point where I, I, I lost track. It was an early, early morning after a couple of dirty bathroom on the couch days, and I dragged myself out. Um, determined to resist the couch and the remote control. And I dragged myself out to my little tiny hot tub on my deck here in Bend. And it was super cold. And I had an experience of, I think my mind was just so exhausted that it quit mm. racing. And I, and I came more fully into the present moment than I ever have. And I believe that's the moment, I, I know that I don't have time to really describe it, but that's the moment that I really met my spiritual self for the mm -hmm. first time. And that I, I was not the same from that moment forward. And that's really what put me on the track. So then I decided, okay, 
I, gave, I surrendered. It was like I had been trying for those first several months to force my work forward and, you know, keep things going despite the unbelievable swirl of insanity. And that was when I was like, you know, okay, I can't do that. I'm actually too broken to do my clients any good anyway. This was in the social enterprise realm. Yes. I'm, I'm going to choose to take, I'm going to choose to treat this as an unasked for sabbatical. And I went really, really, really deep with the, the, the spiritual opening, beginning to understand the difference between ego as this identity that we create for ourselves that actually masks us from who we really are, mm-hmm. all of that. And it was maybe, so it was maybe a year into the whole ordeal. Um, That's pretty fast, you know? Given the significance of the situation, um, that's amazing that you were able to turn it around in that amount of time. But I should put a caveat on that. It was about a year into it when I started realizing, I, I think there's purpose here that I could do some good with. I did not know what that looked like or what that meant. And I, and I still have a long road ahead of me because it's four and a half years now. And it's still, it, I'm still not completely done with all the legal challenges involved with this. I'm hoping that happens next month. I um, hope so too for you. It would be so nice to get closure on that and put it behind you. It's really interesting because I met you just briefly crossing paths at a Women Business Network in California just a few short weeks ago. And um, when we emailed back and forth just saying, hey, great to connect, I saw your TED Talk link um, in your email signature line, and I was like, oh, let me just check that out. And I really just, you know, in all honesty, was going to, like, listen to it for 30 seconds and pop to something else because I really didn't, like, carve out time to watch it. And, oh, my gosh, I was, like, sucked right in. I'm like, okay, everything else can wait. And it was, like, so engaging and literally, like, totally kept my attention. And I was like, whoa, I had no idea you know, and obviously we don't just having brief encounters and, and short meetings with one another, but the depth of your experiences and how you kind of, you know, really had this Phoenix rising revelation. And so I'm wondering when you were preparing for that talk, um, what was it like for you? Was it a cathartic experience? It, it was, um, it was. So that's really, that TED talk is really the first time that I could really talk publicly about most of this because all of the investigations and the challenge, even once the federal investigations were dropped, finding nothing, the state ethics commission took it up and there were things going on there. So I really had not been able to even defend myself publicly, tell my side of the story or anything. And I, it took me months to get to that talk because I, I'm really proud of the fact, actually, I want, as a professional public speaker, I wanted to have that talk nailed months ahead of time so that I could really get fluid with it, but it kept not feeling like, I kept coming back to what is supposed to come through here. I think I started out with the TED Talk, how can I harness this for my advantage? And I had to get to the point of, how can I deliver value? How can... Mm. How can this speak to other people? You know, that's how you, that's how you really harness a hardship. That's such a powerful pivot. I'm so glad that you said that. I just want to highlight that again, that that's truly 
how people connect to us authentically when we get out of our own mindset of what the agenda is and thinking about it from that opportunistic mindset. You know, when you can just be you and tap into the core, I think that emotion flows through so much more genuinely. And that is the, the nectar. That's the bees to the honey. Yeah, I felt really good by the time I got to where it was, which was maybe two weeks out. And, um, but then also because of the public smear campaign that I had been through, and I delivered that talk in Bend, Oregon, in my hometown. Um, yeah, we had, I got threats. I've had, I've had threats off and on through this whole thing, always anonymous, never anything but kindness to my face, which is a whole different topic we could talk and write about. Um, but we had one of the major sponsors of TEDx Bend pull out because they were going to let me talk. We had had to have heightened security. So I also had to have, I had to stay in that place of not letting that fear grab me. Yeah. And what was so amazing, and of course, everyone I ran into at the event were just awesome and lovely and supportive. Um, and there was none of that. I was ready. If there were hecklers who were going to stand up in the audience, I was ready to handle that in a way that demonstrated what my talk was talking about. And not only did that not happen, but people were shouting, I love you midway through. I got a standing ovation. Yeah, it was. So it was extremely cathartic. But from a business perspective, what was really great about it, I was still very much in the nebulous zone of, what is this, you know, personal development, um, empowerment side of my business going to look like? I was still very much in development with that. I had gotten certified through the Tony Robbins, Chloe Madonna's um, coaching institute. I felt like if I was really going to do this work, I wanted credentials and training and not just to hang a shingle, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I had done that. I'd been coaching, but, but drilling down to what are the, what you have an 18 minute talk and you want to get your key pieces across. What are they? And that, that process of getting to that really helped me clarify, you know, this new career path, the book I'm working on, all of it. That's amazing. Did you have a guide help you edit? Cause I know sometimes when we try to do our self editing, we think there's everything's important. It's really difficult sometimes to trim and focus and narrow in and really, like you said, highlight on the big main points. Did you have a help, um, a help resource or a mentor through the process of your writing? I had a couple. I mean, first of all, John's a very good speaker and he knew more of my process that, you know, than, um, than anyone that was useful. I had another dear friend that was useful, but I also am so grateful TEDx Bend happens to do, and I'm not saying this because it's my hometown, it's saying because I've heard it all over. They do one of the better TEDx events. And um, we, all the speakers have a speaking coach. And I got the good fortune to work with Michelle Barrio Franco, want to call her out, um, as my coach. And she made some critical um, fine tunings for me in content, not so much in delivery because I'm a really super comfortable speaker, but a, a few pieces in content and she helped and she was willing to do the work with me. When mm. we did our check-in the night before when the speakers and coaches and spouses and all get together, kind of a little celebration, and the coaches say a little bit about each of their speakers that they coach, she was like, Sylvia, 
holy cowgirl, you are a workhorse. Uh, (laughs) That's amazing. Just to get that validation. And wow, that's, that's awesome to have that kind of support. Um, I love the, the title of your book. And uh, so when life blows up, peace, power, and reinvention. So can you share what that journey has been like? Where are you in the journey? And what your, what your big vision for the book is? Yeah, so where I'm at in the journey is I am, I'm still, so, I mean, it's just been, you know, you hear the term dark night of the soul, or, which is often overused, because I don't believe that that is just a little bout of depression. A true <laughs> dark night of the soul is something that shakes your foundation and who you think you might be, what you think about other people, all of that. And I sat in that for years. And I still, so where I'm at in the process is I reached this point where my survival could no longer depend upon me just forcing it and getting it done out there in the world or out there in the work. My survival depended upon being able to sit for a prolonged multi-year period of time in uncertainty, in events I could not control, in fearful possibilities, and be able to maintain a healthy inner state, state of being. And that's not so easy. (laughs) That's what led to my work now, though, because I think some of my some of my superpowers and the coaching work, the ability to, to, to really drill down on fear, and find out which of these fears actually merit action and which of these fears we're just conjuring up over something in the future that may or may not happen. Mm. You know, that has been unbelievably useful to me coming into the real present moment and, and, and really taking a moment to say, is the fear really warranted here? 95% of the time it's not. So that was huge. Um, uh, being able to really be at peace and in a, in a much greater level of trust with uncertainty and then really developed by necessity for survival some really um, useful techniques for getting a hold of what you can and can't control in certain, in certain circumstances. And that really helps to clarify strategic action when you're feeling really overwhelmed by the enormity of it all. For sure. What type of women do you um, find gravitate to you as an empowerment coach? Yeah, and I actually work with both men and women. Oh, cool. Uh, the bulk of the, I've worked a little bit with millennials, interestingly enough, but the bulk of my clientele are people mostly at middle age who are going through significant transition. That could be transition in um, career, transition in early retirement. I have one right now who's really navigating that. Who am I if I'm not a high-powered doctor, right? Um, that's the bulk of it. It's, it's, it's in life and career transition, sometimes in relationship transition. It's really people, I think, who there are two categories. There are people who have had their life sort of unexpectedly blow up at a time when they did not expect to be dealing with a blown-up life. And then also people who, you know, have gotten to this thing we call middle age, have done a lot, have accomplished a lot, the kids are gone, and it's kind of like, wow, what next? 
what's what's purpose now yes Oh, so valuable. So incredible. So because you're not a stranger to struggle, both in your childhood and in this public shaming um, situation that's happened and it's still not 100% closed off, what do you think the number one learning lesson that you have acquired from all of that is that you translate now to the people that come to you in the coaching arena? Well, I... I definitely, I, I definitely think that the ability to really get real around fear and have concrete ways to do that and to be able to release unnecessary fear mm. is something that I have seen tr- tremendous value to my clients through. Um, and then I also think if, you, if, it, if, it, if it is a person who has gone through the upset of what feels like a lot of loss or really are having their identity shaken um, through, through that, helping them to understand that when we've been through something like this, we might not still have everything we had before. We might not have the same relationships. We might, we might not even have that loved one that we lost. We might not have the positions, the money, but we still are everything that we were. That body of experience and talent and, e- and even the resiliency, I mean, our brilliance is often in our resilience, right? Yes. So those are two that are really, really um, huge. And then I think the other thing I'm so grateful for, I'm super, super organized. So I always have been as a, as a serial entrepreneur and able to do the things. And as a coach, one of the things that I see being of most value is I can work with the person on this inner journey, this inner healing and growth. But meanwhile, like let's have a real serious action plan for you got to find a job, right? Or you got or you're hatching a business. What does that look like? So it's yes. also, it's the dual piece of working with the inner being and also like being realistic about what we need to get done to move forward in this outer life as well. I love that you have an integrative approach. I think it has um, the best efficiency, but also like sustainability, not only in business, but in your life as well. You know, when you have that holistic approach, when you come at it both from the spiritual aspect, but also more of the linear side of the brass tacks of things. So I think that that's very cool. And also, you know, on your point of fear, I think that many of our listeners, you know, they're at all different stages of their business, whether it's startup, um, they could be three years in, they could be 15 years in. But what is a common denominator that definitely keeps them stuck or held back is fear. And so I would love it since you have a lot of experience um, coaching people through fear so they can kind of transform and pivot. If you could share maybe a couple tips that could help our listeners overcome fear, if that's in the state they're in, whether it's in a large life transition or whether it's just even in the mundane day to day where it's like, geez, I can't press publish or, you know, whatever the task is that fear is the thing that holds them back. I would love it if you could give some of your wisdom so they could get over that hump. Well, um, I think the first most important piece of this is actually learning what I call presencing. 
So one of the things I think that saved my life when all of this blew up was I had had a long-term meditation practice on board already because that's the only way I could get around the wild beast that was my mind and the terror that was like ever present. Um, but what I hadn't done, what I didn't realize I was missing, I, like a lot of type A people, I would get up. I would bang out my meditation, I would get that crossed off my list, and I would charge into the day, right? <laughs> what I learned was that was much more like the art of coming into the present moment over and over and over throughout the day. So when I catch myself in fear, financial fear, whatever it may be, what's going to happen with, you know, this last little legal hurdle, I bring myself back to the present moment. And in that moment, I ask myself, I'm feeling the fear, right? And I ask myself, am I really in danger right now? Mm. And like I talk about in my TED Talk, you know, most of the time we're not jumping out of the way of a rattlesnake or in a war zone. Most of the time we're actually safe right in the moment and we're fearing a future, a future outcome. Absolutely. And then, and then the next step is looking at that potential future outcome. And, and, and finding out, is it something I can control or not? Because that's how we merit which of, which of these fears really do require some action. And which do you need to let go of because they are, they're pulling your energy from the action that needs to take place. So that's the process. And over time, you get you know, better and better at it. Another thing that's been really, really useful for people who are wrapped in fear um, and I'll give you one example from a client that I had. He was in a, he was in a, a period of significant transition in a lot of his life. And, was, and one small part of, well, not small, but one part of that was he was really concerned about where his young adult daughter was headed. She was on a trajectory that looked not so great. And they were having real conflict over it. And so he had had similar fears. I found out from him that he had gone through a similar thing with his son who was older. And we were able, I was able to take him back and say, okay, I want you to write about, this is some of his homework. I want you to write about that situation with your son, what your terrors were, what your fears were. And then on the other column, write about how it actually turned out. Because his son actually turned out just fine. Mm. So often, and his daughter's now really on a good trajectory too. So, I mean, sometimes our fears, our worst fears do come true, but an awful lot of the time they don't. And we... Mm you know how it is. And we spend a powerful exercise. Yeah, absolutely. I really like that. And so when you talk about presencing and taking a moment, uh, is it just simple reflection? Do you guide them to like close their eyes or take so many breaths? Or is it not that rigid? Is it just like, you know, let's take a minute to gather ourselves and get centered? Like, how would you explain to somebody if they were like, well, that sounds good. But what does that mean? Like, how can I put that into application? For sure. And it really depends on the client for the most part. In group stuff, if you're doing group clients, then you've got to kind of just pick a happy medium. But with each client, I'll literally ask, are you familiar? Are you comfortable with meditation? Do you meditate? You know, and if not, then it is a little, it is a little quieter. Um, but with presencing, what I really like to do, I don't, I differentiate presencing from actual meditation. Because there are many different things you can do with meditation. You can try to clear your mind. You can focus on, you know, vision, you know, in, uh, imagery, envisioning. 
presenting is about really noticing the present moment that we are in. So I, I really am only fully doing this for the first time since we've been having this interview, right? Because I've been thinking of our interaction, but now I'm noticing, I'm noticing the weight of my body in the chair. I am no, I'm noticing for the first time the, the slight hum of the computer, right? I'm really noticing the background of your backdrop, which I hadn't really looked at. So that point of presencing just a few things, and it's usually sensual, like I can sense my, the, what, I, what, what I'm touching or hearing, that brings us into a present moment that quiets our mind. It slows our mind a little, and then that's when you can look at that fear, Mm, that's amazing. That's really beautiful. And I have to say, like, I've been meditating every day since 1990s, so I'm no stranger to meditation. However, the presencing is something that I probably rarely do, and it's equally as powerful. And I can relate to your point as, um, as far as being a type A personality, and I think it's very easy to, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's super easy to like schedule in even your self-care like meditation from x time to x time and it's like a thing you know but there's something so beautiful in the in the subtle nuances of noticing the present moment i think it has a tremendous power to help you embody and i think i can already feel like my stress level went down just when you were talking about your own noticing, I started to do the same thing and feel my body, feel my breath, you know, feel the different temperature between my hands and my face. You know, it's, it's incredible. It's really incredible. You can do it in the grocery store line. You can do it driving. You know, the other thing is it's also made me a kinder person because I'll, I'll, I don't treat people like vending machines anymore when I'm going through a grocery store line and I have beautiful interactions just because I'm actually really noticing the human being that I'm interacting with. Mm. So I highly recommend it. Honestly, probably many of your readers have read Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now. And, but um, that was, I, when I went through this thing, it, it just, it was a classic example of when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. Mm -hmm. And The Power of Now was one of the first books I opened to when I was in this very, very broken moment. And that's when I was able to start realizing, oh my God, okay, I'm actually not in danger right now. I can't, you know, this is huge. This is public. I'm in the UK tabloids today, but I'm not in danger right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. It takes some serious mind over matter. Absolutely. And gratitude. I'm sure you had to cultivate gratitude on a daily in order to overcome the things you have. I would love, before we wrap up, for you to touch on, I read that you are an activist for anti-poverty, and that really touched my heart, and I would love it for you to share how that shows up in your life today, and is it something that you integrate in your work, or just tell us a little bit about what that means to you in present day. Yeah, so um, my long-term career, and, I, it, and that is still going to some degree with my company, 3E Strategies, working with social enterprise. I started it as a not-for-profit 20-some-odd years ago. It transitioned into a consulting firm, kind of by demand. And the bulk of that, um, gosh, I don't want to glaze over the eyes of your, of your listeners here, but 
Um, the bulk of that has been around moving toward an economic system that doesn't destroy the planet and keep people trapped in poverty. And I would be happy to talk about this on a different show, but the reality is our current form of capitalism does both of those things. Um, we measure progress based on growth of the gross domestic product. And all the gross domestic product measures is how much money is flowing through our system, not whether it's making us better or worse. So for instance, GDP says that money spent to keep a kid in juvenile jail is just as positive as the same amount of money spent to, to give a kid an education. But that's what we use to measure whether or not our economy is performing for us. So that's the, that's the area I had been in for a long, long time. And then when I wound up in the first lady role, so most of this work that I have been in is much more um, systems-based and, and policy-based. And when I wound up in that first lady role, I wanted to have more of a direct person-to-person -person touch as well. So that's when I, when I launched the Prosperity Initiative. And we, again, not to, which is still going on to a large degree, I'm very happy to say. Um, what we started doing within the governor's administration was instead of just throwing more resources at people who were or once they were in poverty, we started looking at the entire state economic plan from how can we go upstream and start designing this so that people have a ramp way out of poverty. And we did some extraordinary things with that. Mm, that is so inspirational. I love it. You're, you're a woman of many layers and depth. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes though, that's a challenge and that's a challenge as an entrepreneur, right? It's hard sometimes to bring it down to the focus we need to bring it down to, especially when we're launching something new and for people for like sure. us, you want to do, I, I will say that one of the mistakes I think I made, I work with people a lot who are going through reinvention. And one of the mistakes that I made um, was was staying too broad for too long and being a little desperate and jumping at kind of every possible opportunity that I thought I could do. And it, and it slowed my progress in actually gaining clarity on what I really, what I really want to do and what I really have to offer. So I would just offer that. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that. I think especially as female creatives, it's super um, common to have this multi-passionate dimension of ourselves and that coupled with the slew of information it can be shiny object syndrome all day long so I think that that's a really really important point that you bring up and so could you share maybe just even one thing that you do to help you narrow the focus or help people who are in reinvention just kind of somehow put some gentle blinders on so they can just super much hone in on what's going to be most in their alignment or have the highest ROI or really um, bring them to the place that they want to get them to that point B. Yeah. Um, and again, it's pretty, it's pretty customized for every situation because part of it is, you know, where are your resources coming from, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that I find extremely useful is time blocking out my week. Because otherwise, I tend to, I, I, and my other downfall is a daily do list that is this long, right? <laughs> I, block out, 
Um, and that's bad for me on two fronts. I mean, first of all, I feel like I'm not getting enough done, but I also am not really focused on anything I'm doing because the goal is to get the list crossed off. So really time blocking out and as much as possible staying true to this is what I'm going to work on today. This is what I'm going to work on tomorrow. I mean, there might be a couple, a couple of overlaps. Um, and then I think just really, so for me, for instance, I have this whole other side of the coaching and empowerment work that I am dying to launch, which is uh, providing resiliency and empowerment support to environmental and social change advocates, to that one specifically, which I love to want to do. But that's an area that um, it's a little harder to monetize, honestly, because those are folks who are not necessarily used to investing in that kind of work mm -hmm. uh, for themselves. And so I'm probably going to wind up going through a model where I work with foundations who would support bringing me in to provide that to their grantees. Cool. But, but, but and I was doing, I was running both tracks, my, my, um, uh, people at midlife in transition, I was building up that program and I was working this over here and I wasn't doing either one of them super well. It's a lot. Absolutely. So that one just has to kind of wait until I get this one to the next level where it's, where it's really a little bit more self-sustaining than it is right now. For sure. One thing at a time. And I always say, you know, go deep, not wide and really put your whole heart and soul into a single focus. And then you can diversify your offerings, which I'm a fan of as well. This has been so great. Thank you so much. I know you have a super busy schedule. I really appreciate you carving time out to share and to be so open and vulnerable about your past and how it's helped you shape your future and also how it helps you interact with people that are going through similar things or reinventions of their own. So I would love two things. One, if you could let us know how people can get a hold of you. Yes. So the best way is my website. It's uh, www.sylviahayes.com. And my Sylvia is spelled strangely. It's C-Y-L-V-I-A-H-A-Y-E-S.com. I did not do that spelling to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'll make sure to put the, that link in the show notes for sure. And lastly, even though you shared some really great tips and wisdom, I would love it if you could leave us with one final quote as we depart. I would say, I would say when we're in the process of significant transition and reinvention, we really have two choices. We can, we can contract and pull in, or we really can loosen our death grip on our old familiar identity and allow ourselves to expand. Mm. And I so recommend the latter. Oh, that's awesome. That's juicy. That is juicy. Thank you so much, Sylvia. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, really. Thank Absolutely. All right, take care. Take care, you too. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on women developing brilliance. If so, head over to Apple iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. And I'd be grateful if you could leave a review or rating so more people can benefit from these inspirational stories about the solopreneur journey. Thank you.